Hey guys, welcome to The Grow Shop Show, where we talk scaling without the bullshit. I'm your host, Mark Patchett, founder of Grow Shop. We are on a mission on the show to find out the growth hacks behind some of the leading experts in e-commerce. Let's hit it with this week's episode. Today, I'm very, very excited to have Ian Martins talking with us. So Ian has done a lot of uh, very, very impressive things. So I remember our first chat, we were just trying to work out when it was, which I think it was around September. A great guy called Michael Taylor introduced us. And I don't even remember what the context was. It may have been that you guys should just talk shop. And we did. And yeah. straight away, straight away, I was blown away as you were one of the first guys I'd talked to that was equally as excited about the intersection of brand and performance. It was like we'd both taken the green pill and we'd seen the light and see where things are going. And it feels like the market is bubbling up uh, a little bit with that now. But in terms of what Ian's been doing, uh, you can fill in the gaps, man. It'd be good. But you are the MD of Bell Curve which is a phenomenal agency, hybrid kind of Toronto, San Francisco, San Francisco setup going, where actually, no, why don't you describe what it is? Because it's quite nuanced yeah. and it's quite exciting. So best to come from the boss's mouth. Sure, yeah. So um, Bell Curve is a growth agency. Um, we're full funnel in our approach. So, um, you know, a lot of growth shops are more focused perhaps around paid acquisition and that sort of thing. But we are truly thinking about it full funnel. And I think, one of the things that differentiates us a bit in our approach is that brand is equally as important as the performance side of the equation. And so we look for ways to bring those two things together. Um, that means we lean pretty heavy on storytelling and copywriting as a competency at the agency. And um, another nuance that makes us a little bit different is just that our internal team is all made up of strategists. So growth strategy, brand strategy, creative strategy. And then we work with freelancers, other agencies, consultants to execute on the work that we're doing with our, our clients. Bang. I couldn't have said it quite like you there, man. So I'm glad, glad I handed <laughs> over the baton. Really, really cool. Uh, and and I've been following you guys for a while and I've always been very impressed with you guys being ahead of the curve. And we touched on it before we started recording, but it was uh, another concept that was definitely well ahead of, I guess, well ahead of the bell curve to you guys. At the, earlier, <laughs> the, early, the earlier phases, we could call it. So the yeah. aim that we have today is to give everybody three to five to probably a lot more really actionable pieces that you can take away into your business and start testing immediately. So we're going to be going over a bunch of different topic-y, question-y types of things. We're going to be talking about the intersection of brand and performance. We're going to be talking about uh, team building. So Ian does some phenomenal things on the, the operational side of building out these agencies. And some of that can be translated into brands. We're going to be talking about actual team management and how there's a shift in KPIs with dirty little things like iOS shifts. Then we're going to be talking about what brands can learn about um, building and running actually these types of agency setups and then some examples of companies that Mr. Ian is liking. Cool. So that's it. So let's start off with, uh, with the intersection of brand and performance. So I think what would be really interesting for everybody listening is what's actually shifting and what do you think it means for people and then the direction that you think it's going? Yeah, so I think perhaps the best way to, to dive into this is probably just sharing my own personal experience. And so um, I, I started off in performance marketing, right? So my first gig in agency land was running paid search and social campaigns. Um, started off working with Procter and Gamble and kind of working with a portfolio of about 30 of their brands and then started to kind of expand out into other types of clients and industries after that. And so I always had a very big focus on 
oh, if you can measure it, then it's worthwhile. And if you can't measure it, it's bullshit. And I think there's this uh, hostility in agency land between media agencies and creative agencies. Um, you know, a lot of that is due to a lot of different reasons, but one of the main things is that they're just two groups of people that are optimizing for different things. They speak different languages. They've got different KPIs. And so what I was noticing over the years that materializing in was just a lot of disconnect and a lot of missed opportunities. So creative agencies would go away and build campaigns and creative ideas in isolation you know, and generally they would lead with TV as kind of being the, the apex of the campaign. And then me on the media side with, you know, search and social in particular, I'd get stuck with a 15 second cut down of the TV ad and they'd expect miracles up with it, right? And I think that all of the new channels, you know, social channels, so on and so forth actually provide more opportunities for storytelling and really unique ways for you to contextualize your, your big creative idea. And so I was always very shocked at the fact that even not at scale, but you know, Fortune 500 brands, that there was this missed opportunity to collaborate, to communicate, and bring creatives and media folks together to think about campaigns holistically, not just what's my TV idea and like forget about everything else. Um, and so, you know, just years of, of kind of observing this and, and the breakdown that happens and the lack of results as a result of that, um, because, you know, you can only do so much with one ad. If you don't have scale, you don't have a lot of different various creatives to work with. There's only so much you can do as a, as a media buyer. And so just through observing that over the years, um, it was always just something that I wanted to correct. And um, when I launched Abacus and I joined the two co-founders over there, which was the previous agency that I built, um, one of our kind of main ambitions with it was to correct that and sort of bring creative and media together under one roof. We'd get briefs from clients and they would work on these campaigns together. Um, and it, it really changed how they approached digital channels. You know, initially when we launched that agency, we were focusing primarily on kind of the ecosystem of Facebook and Instagram. Um, but after a while, what we realized is we got really good at just communicating with humans through a mobile device. And so that kind of became our, our focus. And so I think when I think about the intersection of brand and performance, what I think about is your brand is not just a TV ad. It's not a big media buy. Your brand is the sum total of every touch point that you have with a consumer, whether that's in an ad, whether that's in a landing page, whether that's in store, so on and so forth. And so how do we optimize that experience and utilize all of the, the tricks and hacks and great things we can do on the performance side, but approach it a little bit more strategically from a brand narrative perspective. And so it takes a little bit more upfront work from a strategy perspective in terms of, okay, how am I gonna allow performance teams to have the free reign they need to test and experiment, but put them in a box that is optimizing that brand experience. And so that's how I think about the, that, that kind of intersection. Yeah, amazing. It's getting getting those two different groups talking for the first time is like a, is like family counseling. I remember the first mm -hmm. time I had, I had the creative sitting there with the media buyers and everyone's like, what the, what the fuck are we doing sitting in a room together? And mm -hmm. the, the data in the middle was a really interesting thing because when, when the creative team started getting how empowering it was that they could have these validation points, which is which is like real money either being made or not made to validate the six ideas that they had, 
it starts almost being like cheating. You know what I mean? So instead of doing these large TV productions where the you know the easel would be up and they're like, that's how to sell it. You know, they're what do they say in Mad Men about the cigarettes? They're toasted. Yeah. Toasted, that's right. It's toasted. That's the, the big idea. Yeah, it's toasted. And then having that and saying, we're gonna we're gonna put a couple of million behind the TV ad and then we're just gonna chop it up and you guys get some dregs. But you've got the pixel shit, you know, make make this make this 15 second cut work because you got the pixels. Just go let it yeah. go let it run. So difficult. But then once they started seeing how empowering it was having that actual information, it worked it worked phenomenally. And I think you yeah. I, I completely agree that it's it's pulling apart what brand actually means. So I think when you had, even within say a media agency where you'd had the people doing the brand kind of ads, brand should be never talking about buy now. Brand should never be about anything aggressive or direct response. It should be like the feeling of the brand. But I don't think it's really it. And I, I think we talked about this uh, last September is that brand is always about transaction. It's always about LTV, but it just has a different time horizon. So it may be that people need to be communicated in a different way. It may be a softer way for someone to understand like the context or the concept of a brand before you're trying to like pommel them with retargeting the ads to buy. But it's still, it's just the entry point about a, of a relationship with a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, the analogy that I, I see all the time and people are always talking about it is like, you know, uh, the, like it's like a relationship. You wouldn't meet somebody and ask them to marry you on a first date. Right. And so you need to build that relationship. I think the same thing exists in the brand space. And it's an, it's an easy analogy because most people have gone through that experience. But, I, but I'd say that what I've noticed as a shift now is more like, what is the value that the brand is giving to you in your, in your daily life? And kind of optimizing the touch points and the experience around like, how present in this, is this brand in your life? Because I think particularly for, for newer consumers, they're okay with the transactional stuff. Right. They don't get, I don't think they, it, they get so put off with it. Like you look at things like, uh, you know, new sneaker drops, for example, those are like cultural moments, but that's a buy now pitch. You know what I mean? And, and they've turned into these cultural moments. So I don't think that people are actually put off by that, you know, more traditional salesy side of, of marketing, which in the past, you know, brand focused people have kind of looked down on it. I think it's just the context in which it happens. And, how present are you in the lives of people? Like, do they actually give a shit? You know, I think sometimes marketers get in the boardroom and they drink their own Kool-Aid a bit too much in terms of their, their mission and what are we trying to do and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, bro, you sell paper. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you, you know what I mean? And, and, and like, yeah. I think sometimes people need to, to kind of step aside, think like a consumer and be like, how can I just make people's lives easier? How can I remove friction? You know, just back to basics. Yeah. And I think there's an authenticity that comes from it as well. So I remember when there was like the Simon Sinek thing exploded and everyone's like, what's our why? You know, what's our why? And you're right. It's like you're selling fucking paper. You know what I mean? So yeah. then I think it's being really authentic. And I like I like those brands that go in still very transparently about it, where they're like, we sell paper. We have the best prices. We're going to deliver it to you. And we got lots of five star reviews because people like what we do bang you know what i mean like that that could be the ad uh on the sneak yeah so you go no i I said that that can totally be it and like you know granted i understand now you know consumers are a little bit more conscious at least they like to see that signaling and messaging so if you're selling paper it's like are you donating something to planting trees and and like 
I, I can appreciate the integration of those messages, um, but it's very easy to be disingenuous and for it to look like a marketing ploy and not part of your business. So it's like it's like a fine line to walk when you when you start doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's are we in the paper business because we're trying to plant more trees? Or do we plant more trees because we want to offset the impact we have while we're still a business that's for profit, which is very, very different. Yeah, totally. People's bullshit filters comes in quickly. And, uh, yeah. We had that with a water business I had, uh, Waranu Water, a name that wasn't very effective uh, in the end. And what we realized is that the, the economic model of the business still needed to be sound enough. So we thought that by donating one filter to a, an orphanage that was in Cambodia, we could come at a 20% price premium. Plus, we wanted it to look cool. We were inspired by Apple, forgetting that this stuff lives under your sink and people don't really give a shit about what it looks. It just needs to work. So we thought that our story was going to be strong enough to actually build the whole concept of the business, but it wasn't. We still had to have our paper, in this example, selling at you know, a cost-effective or an effective enough price. But the, the social component, which was really true to us, that was going to be something that would be a reason that people would tell others they bought the product, which was enough mm-hmm. in the end. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I've been doing research around this sort of thing of, you know, will people pay a premium for the more ethical business model, let's say, or the more um, sustainable business model, I think it really depends on the cohort of people that you're selling to. I think fairly affluent people will be less sensitive to the price increase and they'll buy in to the story more because it, it aligns with their identity. Um, but I think if you're looking at like middle income and down, they might self-report that it matters to them and that it would skew their, their, uh, purchase behavior. But I think in practice, you have observed that it's just generally not the case. Yeah. That, like, if they like yeah. the story, they'll self signal yeah. and, and answer a survey saying they would pay the premium. But when push comes to shove, you know, the price sensitivity is kind of number one. Yeah, and it's a tough one to research as well pre-product launch mm-hmm. because you're like okay guys people mm-hmm. really give a shit about this but they don't buy so you're like ah oh, what's what's yeah. going on where's the disconnect where's the disconnect here yeah. i think it also depends on the type of product so where where we kind of shot ourselves in the foot is that we had a commoditized product so there was equal utility between us and others and it was hidden under the sink so if you look at like a tom's type of footwear it's a, a fashion item. So firstly, there's a massive variable on what value is and you can kind of self-signal there. But then you've also got like a label that you can wear around as, a, as like a badge to prove to people. We didn't have any yeah. of those things. Yeah, so it was a good learning. Right. Intersection of brand and performance. What a topic. Another big, so we, another big one. So we've got team building. So this is, this is a really tricky one when you think about the life cycle of, of different brands where they may have gone from zero to a million or they're trying to go from a million to five, five and up. When is the right time to start thinking about hiring internally versus working with agencies, versus working, working with contractors? What have, what have you observed that would be useful for companies across the various life cycles? Yeah, so I have... I guess my opinions on this skew depending on the ambitions of, of the founders and the people kind of building the company. I think some people, founders in particular, like they understand marketing and they are just instinctively a little closer to it in the process. And I think they generally 
have ambitions of building out a larger marketing board has been my, my observation. And so in those cases, I think that it's important to have an in-house, at least one in-house kind of marketing owner um, right from the beginning, if possible, um, because they're going to be able to move a lot faster if the founder understands marketing with potentially an internal hire leading strategy, you know, kind of pulling that out of the founder and then briefing on agencies for, for primarily execution, at least in the earlier days, if needed. I think agencies can be expensive, so it depends on your funding situation. So perhaps it's more, you know, that in-house marketer hiring freelancers initially um, before they're, they're scaling up to an agency. However, if, if your founding team is like engineers, you know, product folk don't really understand marketing at all, um, it can be hard to hire the right marketing person initially. And there can be some tension there if you don't understand marketing. And I think agencies are probably a little better positioned to do education um, and educating founders and kind of bringing them up to speed. And so I think that for you know very early stage, it could make sense to bring on an agency to help you with strategy and understanding, you know, marketing or growth, thinking, you know, looking at how to think about it and, and doing some of that education piece before you get to the point where you're kind of bringing in that, that in-house marketer. And so that's kind of two different paths that I see depending on, on that founder set and, and at, right at the beginning of the company. And then as things progress, again, it kind of goes back to those ambitions of what's the kind of complexity of a marketing org that you want to have in-house. And I think the type of business makes it a little bit different. Like if you're a D2C brand, as you scale and as you go up, you might go to agencies to do stuff much quicker. But as you start to bring in, you know, over 5, 10, 15, 20 million in rev, it starts to get more and more compelling to build like a very robust internal agency um, just because of the speed of work that you're going to want to do. Um, being close to the timelines along product releases, so on and so forth. And so I think for like a D to C brand, as the business scales, particularly if you're in a sexier product category, you know, um, you're able to attract talent, creative talent in-house because it's something cool. They're going to have probably a bit more um, creative freedom. Uh, than they might, you know, in an agency working with big brands, so on and so forth. So you might be able to attract the right types of creative as well. And so I think in that context, as you're kind of scaling up, it makes sense to put an in-house agency. And, you know, you might rely on external agencies for, for bigger productions or um, some additional kind of technical capabilities and shops that you don't necessarily want to build out in-house. Um, but around kind of creative, around strategy, um, even media buying, I think a lot of that makes sense to do start to build out in-house. And this is coming from a guy who <laughs> builds agencies. But I think as you as you scale up and, and you have those resources, it, ma it makes sense. On the other side, like let's say you're a, a, you know, a SaaS company, you're founded by you know, engineers, you're very product focused. Um, perhaps it, it can very quickly have seen go the route of being coming a sales-led organization and a sales-led marketing organization. And then what happens in those orgs is that you're not doing marketing, you're selling through digital channels. Yeah. And, and it, I think that that's a, a dangerous trap to fall into. And so 
in that context, I think it makes a lot more sense to work with agencies because they'll be able to push back on you a little harder and provide additional context. Um, and because they're a third party, you might trust them more than if you had hired an in-house marketing team and you're pestering them to just drive leads every month and you're not seeing how why it's not working out for, for your organization. I see that way too frequently. And so I think in that context, I generally tend to recommend that you work with, with agencies um, until you've got a lot more sophistication and kind of understanding how to approach marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's not, it's not, it's kind of a, not a one size fits all answer. And we can talk about um, kind of the, the roles that you're hiring and the needs if you want to get more specific perhaps. But um, I think that it, it, it starts with the ambitions of the founders, the understanding of marketing of the founders, and it all kind of stems from there initially. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And it's so interesting when you dissect the motive of growth from a company, particularly if you're looking whether it was like a marketing type founder, that one's easy. That one's always easy because they'll take one of two parts. So one is that they'll understand how to hire the right agencies and they won't be scared of the fees because they see it as a profit center instead of a cost center. Versus when you're working with an engineering e type product company, even when it's D2C, it may be that they've built their platform on you know magical custom tech or whether it's like SaaS. That, that always presents some interesting challenges. So like one of them is that they may hire an agency, but if the CEO was the one that chose the agency, but then the VP of product still needs to be the one that executes things that that agency need, you may have this kind of tension. So I always want to know that I've got alignment in terms of who's bringing on the agency from both the decision maker times the person who's going to be like the POC that's going to be executing things. That always I've always found really critical. Yeah, another thing that I've, I've found super critical, and it's remarkable to me still how many times I walk into a, you know, a first meeting with a new potential client or um, I'm talking to a friend at, at another company or what have you. And it's, it all starts with understanding, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? Like, what are our objectives? What are our metrics of success? And aligning on that. And it's so frequently that I see that there's no alignment on that. They don't know what their KPIs are. They're measuring too many things. They're looking at too many signals. They wanna to do too many things simultaneously. And it's like, they're not winning on anything as a result, right? And there's, there's lack of alignment. I yeah. think in a lot of the work that we're doing at Bell Curve, people will come to us and say, I need you your help to help us start, you know, to scale our paid campaigns. And I'm like, okay, I've heard this one before. Is, it, is that really the problem here or is there something else going on? Yeah. And, and as you start to have conversations and um, you start to realize that the media buying is like the last thing that's the problem that, you know, there's only so many buttons you can push. It's, there's no, they don't understand their positioning. They don't understand their value propositions. There's no alignment around what they're trying to drive. You know, it's like, yes, okay, revenue, but like, how are you doing that? Who are you going after? Who are your personas? And so much of these fundamentals are actually not figured out. And uh, I posted on, on a comment somewhere yesterday on, on in Twitter. I can't remember what it was in, in, with regards to, but I think that, the reason that I've observed that this happens a lot is a lot of founders and, and earlier stage companies, marketing teams, and even enterprise in some cases, um, they feel like that by making these decisions, they're reducing like the total addressable market. 
right? And and it's almost like by picking, you know, only three personas that I'm selling to, but I could sell to all these people, you know, all these people could use my product, but, you know, and it's the classic, like if you're selling to everybody, you're not selling to anybody. And we talk about this. This is something that's been talked about for decades. Mm. And I think people still don't fundamentally don't understand it. Um, And that not making a decision is a decision to not make a decision. You know, it's, it's like, um, and, and like that is a, a misunderstood thing as well. It's like, no, you don't understand. It's like, there's practical implications of you not making a decision where it makes it harder for all the work that you need to do. And so make a decision, experiment, try for a while to go down X, Y, Z rabbit hole, evaluate the progress. And if you have to, you can switch course. I mean, most people aren't paying attention enough to your brand or your company. And so you can, you can change things up. You can experiment, you can try again. Um, I think sometimes there's this fear of the permanence of decisions. Um, and it's generally because everybody thinks that people are paying attention to them a lot more than they actually are. Yeah. yeah, So again, it's kind of like this, like, okay, take off the, you know, stop drinking your own Kool-Aid, take off the glasses. Like people don't care about your, you know, your pot company that much, (laughs) you know, you sell kitchenware. It's like you can switch up your brand approach. You can kind of change your personas. I don't think anybody's going to notice. Yeah. You know, and you can still stack the segments. So the one the one thing that's always helped me cut through this, because uh, you're right, people have have their product and like everybody loves this shit. What are you talking about? This is this is mass mass market. Blow it up Yeah, uh, has been. All right. Well, let's we know we can go after a large market. Why don't we map out and segment who all those different types of people are? What do they look like? Let's learn more about this entire world that we can sell to. Then when when we've got that, people usually find it quite fascinating. Then you've got these segments where you can run hypothesis-driven sprints to try and say, all right, why don't we crack one of them at a time? Let's give it, let's give it everything we've got. Let's make sure we've got continuity across our messaging, across the website, across the emails. Let's go get them and then stack them up. And we've had a lot of luck with that as well where we wouldn't have cracked uh, that individual segment unless we talked to them in the right way. But then we were still able to hit multiple different segments just with that same approach. But without it, you're just muddying the waters and you're not creating a message that resonates with them and makes them feel like, hey, they understand deeply why I want that pot. This guy gets me. This guy gets me. Mm -hmm. Some people are cooking two-minute ramen. You know, some people are whipping up, you know, gourmand. You hit the nail on the head here and... um it's you got to talk to customers and you need to understand what truly motivates them and and what they really care about. Um, I think we have a new generation of marketers that have grown up in digital marketing and have been able to use things like interest targeting and psychographic targeting. And they've approached marketing in a, I'm going to push this button. Mm. And and it's like, uh, it's like this, this human is fed up to me. They're all the same. It's yeah. just a number, yeah. you know, and I'm, and I'm going to push this button and it's this type of person by yeah, pushing yeah. this button. And I'm going to put this message in front of them. Yeah. A lot of these folks are not actually having real conversations with actual, you know, people and yeah. like humans and under, trying to do that research and get under the hood of like what motivates you and how do you think about this? And it's kind of goes back to, to basics a little bit. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that, that we're, trying to address that is through um, kind of a new approach to, to copywriting and storytelling and understanding your customers. Um, and we call it story systems. And so it's this idea of 
how do I think about what my brand level proposition, you know, value propositions are, you know, and this is kind of building off of a, a brand strategy process. And then once you have those, it's about understanding, you know, who are the, you know, three personas, five personas, whatever, you know, you could stack them as, as you're referring um, or kind of mentioning it, but like, who are the three personas we're trying to sell to, at least now, you know, we can change that later. How do I need to contextualize my brand, you know, value propositions to their reality? And their needs and what they care about and you know you might have five value propositions at a brand level but maybe one persona literally only cares about one of those and so how do you think about the 10 different ways you can articulate that for that one persona and so we go through this practice and it all starts with you know customer interviews uh stakeholder interviews within the company to understand the product and you know we build out these narratives kind of full funnel from awareness consideration all the way into like actual activation and onboarding and getting referral because different things are going to motivate these people. And we call it a story system because ideally when it's executed well, um, it serves a similar purpose as what a design system would do. So a design system is basically a library of assets that you can use and repurpose to build new things, mm, yeah. new features, new pages, so on and so forth, right? Um, and it's easy. And the results that you get out of it are consistent, right? You're, you're using the same iconography, you're using the same elements to build new products, new features within your application or your website or whatever. So from a storytelling perspective, it's like when you map all of this out, you're now handing over to your marketers, whether that's performance marketers or brand marketers, this lovely sandbox of messages, stories, kind of important points of, of communication and different ways to articulate it that are in that branded box in terms of a tone of voice and how we talk about these things. But you're giving them this lovely sandbox to build new campaigns, build new things, build new messaging tracks and kind of play with that. And what it does is it really accelerates the speed at which you can do this work, right? So you get approvals throughout the organization on this sandbox. So when there's an opportunity in practice, in a campaign, in the moment, you already have all of these assets you can pull from and kind of put into market. You don't need That's to great. go through the actual getting approvals and waiting. And by the time you tech comes back a week or two later, you know, you've missed that opportunity. And so it's like, spend that upfront time, really thinking about this deeply um, and building that all out. And then you're free to run that after that point. Mm, yeah, it's phenomenal, man. It's phenomenal. And it's, it's the dream situation really, isn't it? And it fixes quite a few different problems. One of them, as you touched on is speed, you know, it sounds like it's, you want it to be more of like a treasure chest than a sandbox. It's like you're giving it over, you've got all of the different, right. it's like a matrix of pieces that you can just mix together, but it also maintains continuity. But when you've got it delivered like that, you've also got alignment throughout the entire organization. Cause you get these situations where you may have nailed it with one of the personas and it's founded on a lot of research. Then there maybe is like a new media buy that starts and they just go a little bit rogue. And maybe they were like one of the, one of the trigger happy guys. And you like you remember the depth of segments you used to be able to get. You know what I mean? Like this is a mm -hmm. this is a thirty a thirty nine year old woman who's been married twice that likes to eat spam. Uh, it's like what what are you doing? What can you do with that? Yeah. What can you do with it? Yeah. Like well, Facebook says it's true. You know, you know, you think you know how to talk specifically to that person until you counter it with some proper qualitative research which I completely agree. So you, you maintain continuity and then you can test at a much, much faster rate and then you get alignment within the organization. Sounds like a good system, man. Ticking the boxes. That I'm gonna skip a question yeah. and then go to uh, this other one that we had because I wanna talk more about targeting because I think it'd be great to share some of your thoughts there. 
So one of the pieces sure. we had was about KPI alignment, but how that's shifting with iOS 14. So when you used to be able to have this highly, highly uh, detailed level of granular reporting through platforms like Facebook, now a lot of that's being hoovered up. How are you thinking uh, about KPIs now and reporting and success? So there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll start high level and I'll start kind of drilling in. I think macro is probably a good thing despite the short-term pain. And, and that's for, for a number of reasons. Um, to go a bit more detailed, I think it really depends on if you're a legacy company at, or a new entrant into the market. So did you have access to all of this data before and now you don't? That's one situation. Are you entering into a world where you're never going to have access to that information because mm. those toys have been taken away, right? <laughs> and so I think the two companies, um, types of companies are, are going to need to approach it in a different way. I think the legacy, we'll just call them legacy brands, um, have an advantage, hopefully, in that they've learned a lot already, right? And so they can take a lot of those learnings that they had at that more granular level and kind of continue to work forward from there in terms of like brand level learnings, right? What messages work, what personas work, what markets work, so on and so forth. I think there's a lot of granularity that they were had access to and hopefully got a lot deeper learnings out of it. And now it's time to really lean on those learnings as much as possible. Um, I think that there's some interesting ways that they can do some, some data modeling because they have historical data as well. And so, you know, if you got the right kind of team of, of data scientists and what have you, you can do some predictive modeling and some analysis and compensate for what you're lacking. I think the biggest hurt is just that the algorithms themselves are not necessarily picking up on the same signals that they used to and optimizing with the same signals that they used to. Um, and so that is something that's just, you're not going to be able to overcome that. That's just a change in the systems in general. But at least there's there's more intelligence that you can lean on. There's more historical data. So you should be a little bit better prepared. I think the the challenge to that situation, though, is, you know, it's like once you've flown first class, it's hard to go back to coach. Um, and so once you've had access to all those tools, you might spend a lot of time, energy, and effort to try to outsmart um, work around how do I keep doing this in, in, in kind of the new world as opposed to, you know, taking it for what it is and perhaps looking at it from, okay, well, you know what, this is going to put a lot more pressure on our creative and our brands to actually stand out. You know what, we actually probably have to do a lot more work on building a true relationship with our community of, of potential buyers and doing other marketing activities. You know what, maybe we can't just target the right people with ads anymore. Maybe we need to deliver some form of value to this audience <laughs> and like actually build a brand, right? Yeah. And it's less transactional and more brand building. Yeah. So where, where I think the challenges for these legacy orgs is they were so quant before. And if they're not able to understand the kind of ever present rising importance of the qualitative side of the equation, um, they might lose, even though they won initially on the quant side. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I'm seeing it on that side. Yeah. On companies who have never got access to that granular data, they're entering a noisier, you know, marketplace. There's more advertisers than ever. Um, 
people are not just going to click on a t-shirt and buy it because it popped up in their Facebook feed the same way that they did five, six years ago, because it was new. Um, and so brand <laughs> becomes a much more important part of the equation. Like, how do you cut through the noise? What is your creative? Like, how are you building cultural relevance? Um, I think all of that becomes a lot more important. I think, um, you know, influencers, uh, people have a lot of different opinions on them. Um, but I think that it's a lot harder now than it has been in the past for a new brand to just throw up ads and people to trust them enough to transact. People are looking for reviews, they're looking for testimonials, they're looking for other people that are using the product, influencers, review videos, so on and so forth. And so I think that entering through partnerships, influencers, affiliates um, starts to make a lot more sense Versus, and it might take a little bit longer to build, you know, the right types of relationships and picking the right partners and what have you. Um, but they'll at least probably get you into the market and give you a bit of a head start versus you just trying to go cold to an audience with your brand um, and just start running ads. I don't think it works the same way. And especially now that you can't go as micro with all of your targeting, it's even it's even harder than it might have in the past. Like there might have been some low hanging fruit that you could quant your way to in the past. I think it's a lot harder to, to get at that now. And the importance of your creative in, in this mix is, and your brand um, is, is much higher percentage of your overall success. Yeah. And so yeah, if, you, if you are a new company, a new brand, I don't think you get to like just have a product, start testing and figure out your brand as you go. I think you need to like really think about your brand be like before you even go to market. Yeah, completely agree, man. And I think the, the interesting shift backwards, which we're looking at, and a big focus of ours in general is on the partnership side. So it's the same thing as when you when you lose attribution transparency, you need to move backwards and you need to start talking with people and you need to really put in the effort to find out what's worth making a bet on if you're not going to have perfect data. Because companies were still built 50 years ago, 80 years ago. They still did well. They still became very large. And we still have much, much, much better tools than they did. So it's still there. So the ones, the ones that I'm loving is on the strategic partnerships. So two things come out of it. So if you think about like a, a traditional retailer who already had thousands of customers, they had uh, physical store presence. When they went online, they could afford to, to kind of fuck up a little bit because you know ultimately if 80% of their revenue is coming from retail, it's just a bit of a blip. So even when these companies were going 50-50, they can still stomach and afford to make bigger attribution bets because their company isn't 100% reliant on that versus these like D2C native businesses, which are getting like absolutely kneecapped. So if you think about partnerships, partnerships, particularly if it's on like a CPA basis, it has a similar effect to having offline and online distribution in that if you're driving 30% of your sales from this strategic partnership, you're paying out in the CPA, you've got more of like a tolerance buffer to make some bigger bets on the direct-to-consumer side where you're driving and paying paying for your traffic um, on Facebook or whether it's on AdWords. So we love those defensible types of positions because it means that you've got you've got more cushion to then spend more into the unknown. Spend into the unknown. That sounds like a memoir, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, the, the other thing too that, you know, I tend to remind companies of is that, like, who said building a brand and building a company was cheap? Yeah. And that it came with zero risk. Yeah. You know, 
like just because there was this blip in history where you could spend five grand on your first ads and like hit yeah. it and make a profit yeah. and like it set this expectation and this almost you know a degree of entitlement of new companies and new brands that like I got to be ROI positive on the first dollar I spend. Yeah, and if yeah. I am not profitable with my first five or 10 grand, my agency sucks and I'm going to fire them and go to a yeah, different yeah, one. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it, it, you know, there, I think that the, it's great that, you know, launching a business has been democratized. You know, everybody's got access to the same tools. Um, it's easier now than ever to be an entrepreneur. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's it's supposed to be easy that there is no risk that you aren't going to need to commit to doing things and paying for things without immediate returns yeah you know i think well that brand building often gets lumped into that bucket oh it's costs money it's something i gotta do and i don't see an immediate return on it yeah yeah. Just because you can't measure the immediate return does not mean it's not important for your business over the long haul. You know, I, and I always try to suss this out. I'm like, are you trying to make a quick buck in six months? You launch a brand, make some cash, and then it folds because it's not sustainable. Or are you trying to be in business in five, 10 years from now? Like, are you actually trying to build something or build a company? Or are you trying to run some sort of arbitrage machine to pull some cash out of quickly? Yeah, because yeah. those are two different things, right? Yeah. And you're going to approach them very differently. And it's company um, building, really, isn't it? It's not, it's not even, it's brand building. It's company building. Yeah. It's, coming. it's and company building. Yeah. It costs money. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you need money. You need, you need time. Uh, you need investment. And to your point, like, you know, you could take bigger bets without the attribution um, in, you know, in certain contexts, you know, I think sometimes it just comes back down to common sense. It's like, does having a relationship and delivering value to this audience seem like the right thing to do, you know, to, to, to build, build that relationship with them? Yes. Well then, how are we going to do that? How are we going to deliver that value, even though we're not transacting on it right away? And how are you having those conversations and thinking about it? And it doesn't have to be all of the budget. You know, like I look at um, somebody like that speaks a lot about brand versus performance is uh, Meyer Gupta. Um, and one thing I read recently, it was like, you do need the numbers, you need the performance, you need the transactional marketing, particularly early on. Um, but you should still invest something in that longer term play. You know, is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? And that's dedicated to those long-term bets. And then you're still putting 80% into, okay, we got to drive business. We got to put numbers on the board today. Fine. But don't only focus on that and do nothing in the other bucket. And I think, I think iOS 14 switch to kind of loop it back is kind of forcing people into having those conversations and thinking about it in a different way um, versus just quant and transactional marketing um, 100%. Yeah, completely, completely agree, man. I think what's what's powerful about this is that it does, it does cost money, but it doesn't need to be prohibitive. You know, you're right. People have access to very, very good, very, very cheap tools. And even if you don't have a shitload of money to throw behind it, you may have time. You may have time to really work on the product development cycle, to be talking with a lot of people, to be ensuring, to get to a stage that you've created something that actually matters to people. And then there's other things which don't necessarily cost a lot of money. You just need to care about it. So it's about the, the operational side of the business. You know, what is the service side of it like? It's not very expensive to build out a CRM that integrates well with DHL or with FedEx that gives people useful updates. 
that doesn't actually cost that much now. You can build a lot of this stuff out with Zapier or to take the time to hire a good customer service agent that may cost 25 bucks and just give them the right KPIs to say that this isn't about ignoring people for, for five days. It's about showing that you really care. It's about having personality. And the other shift in, in line with like iOS 14, which is shaking the market up, is the Facebook review side. So not in terms of the Facebook reviews you find on someone's page, but Facebook running reviews to, to run bullshit filters on all the AliExpress types of businesses and businesses that aren't actually delivering on their promises and shutting accounts down. You know, there was an account that was spending over 50 million and Facebook shut them down. So it's really, yeah. it's really a positive shift in the market for companies to start focusing more on who their customers are and ensuring they're creating products that actually deliver and not in the sense of getting to their doorstep, a product that actually fulfills the promise it's got. And then on the operational side, not being a dick about it. You know, you've, you've given the people, the power back to the people. So I think it's really, really good. Good yeah. topic. No, you, you bring up a lot of good points. And, you know, a lot of what you're talking about ties back to, to something I was saying at the, the beginning of this conversation, which is brand is not a million dollar TV buy or a Super Bowl ad or whatever. The brand is every, is the sum of every touch point you have with your consumer. And so yes, the, the DHL updates on tracking, the customer service, this is all part of brand building. And I think that when you look at it perhaps through that lens, you think about it that way, perhaps it'll make you value it in a way that you might not have before. Whereas before you might've looked at it as logistics or strictly operations. I think if you look at it as, no, this is actually your brand it might put a, a different amount of importance on it. Yeah, completely agree, man. It's phenomenal. So let's finish with an example of a company that you think is doing all this stuff we've talked about uh, very, very well. Anyone that you think is standing out at the moment? Yeah, so there, there's this company, Wealth Simple in Canada. Wealth Simple. And I think they've just gotten it right on so many fronts. So they're um, an in, kind of like, they started off as a robo investment platform. Um, so similar to like Wealthfront, right? You, you put your cash in there, that kind of optimizes your, you, your risk and it does like your auto, kind of auto investing. And they came out with this campaign really targeted at kind of millennials, um, which was investing for humans, right? And just kind of trying to demystify investing, trying to make it simple. And I think, Everything that this company has done from their design system, their story system, the consistency of, of the experience across their messaging to their product, um, the UX design, um, just how everything works in this company, like end to end, all the touch points. I think they just, they nailed it. They got mm. it all spot on. Um, and and yeah, I can't, I can't sing them enough praise. Now, do they have the best robo investing algorithms and all that sort of stuff? I don't know. I don't pretend to be an investment specialist and I don't play one on the internet. So um, buyer beware, but they've done a lot of really incredible moves. Um, more recently, they've expanded. You can now buy crypto on their platform. You can do your own kind of stock picking. You can buy fractional stocks on the platform. And it's just a really easy experience. It's beautiful on mobile. Um, and so I think from, from their marketing, their brand, their narrative, their ads, their creative, their UI, like just everything is consistent and on point. It's like end to end, really well executed company. Yeah, which which is a great example where 
the actual function, the underlying piece, which the product of the company is so far uh, separated from everything that happens before of it, which is how do you connect to this group of people that may not have invested or anything like that? And what's the requirement to get them through? How are you communicating with them? How slick does the UI need to be? What is the onboarding process? I bet their CRM flows are phenomenal. I bet they're, they're yeah, running, the, the, yeah. They're, they're quite good. And, you know, I always think about this too on the, are they delivering on their promise, right? Every brand has a promise that they need to deliver on. And I think the level at which they deliver on that promise, how fast they deliver on that promise, it will dictate the success or failure of a company, right? And their promise was to simplify investing, right? Investing for humans, pull out the bullshit, pull out the jargon, take out all the complications and just make it a really easy experience for people to take their cash, put it in something, get it in the market and like, forget about it. Right. Um, and they've, they've really delivered on that promise. And, you know, that ties into everything. Like the communication needs to be simple. The advertising needs to be simple. The messaging needs to be simple. The UI needs to be easy and simple and, and kind of frictionless. And, and I, through all of those kind of details, they've delivered on that that promise of, of really simplifying investments for people. Which is, is interesting there, isn't it? Because there's two different things that they promised. There's the simplification of investing, which is the entire process we've talked about. Then there's the, the actual end result, which is how much money am I making? But then also the realities of investing. So how do you help people start understanding what the inherent risks are? So you're not kind of trying to sell them snake oil. And yeah, it looks like these guys yeah. have done a great job. Amazing. They have indeed. Great example. That's it, man. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Really glad we got to connect again. We're going to pull out a bunch of different things that people can test and people should be thinking about in the show notes. And then we'll also add how people should get in touch with you, which is right. your preferred. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn, actually. Uh, I have a Twitter account. I, I'm kind of more of a lurker than a, than a participant. <laughs> A participator on there um, but you can hit me up on um, on LinkedIn just LinkedIn Ian Martins um, and if you want to find out more about the agency we've got a contact form at bellcurve.com that you can fill out and um, I'll follow up with you cool we'll chuck it in the, the show notes as well that is it thank you so much everybody thank you again to Ian have wonderful days wherever you are at thank you everyone for listening if you want to find out more about Growth Shop head over to growth.shop to see how we scale direct to consumer brands to 50 million and beyond. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We appreciate everyone's support while we get the ball rolling on the Grow Shop Show. So if you like the episode, share the love with your network. Thanks again and see you on the next one.